gets uh, his attention. But it's more like it was a counter or um, an alternative to the way that the religious leaders of the day were praying. Jesus said that they were using endless words and repeated phrases and going on and on. And he said, instead of that, let's do something that's a little more personal and that focuses on the priorities of God. So that was his word to those people. You know, today as we pray it, think about comparing the way that you typically pray, what you pray about and how you do it, to what is in this prayer that we will say together. So let's uh, pray together. Why don't we uh, stand? We're going to sing right after we pray. And we will um, enter the Lord's presence that way. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts just as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So let's sing to this God that we praise, sing of his great love for us.
Well, good morning. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church. If you're new or you're joining us for the first time this morning, whether you're here or you're online, let's say welcome and thank you for being here. We're glad to be able to join together in this place or via the computer and worship our God together. Uh, a couple of announcements before we get back into our worship this morning. One, the coming Thursday uh, at 6.30, that will be our Women's Common Ground Time, both here in the church and via Zoom. So we'd encourage you to be part of that if you're a woman. Um, yeah, so we're, just, we're glad that you are here with us this morning as we to join together and sing more praise to our Lord and God. You're still standing? Why don't you stay standing? I'm going to uh, read some scripture, and then we're going to sing another song. This is from Psalm 39. This is a psalm written by David. And he says, I said to myself, I will watch what I do and not sin in what I say. I will hold my tongue when the ungodly are around me. But as I stood there in silence, not even speaking of good things, the turmoil within me grew worse. The more I thought about it, the hotter I got, igniting a fire of words. Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that, that my days are numbered, how fleeting my life is. You have made my life no longer than the width of my hand. My entire lifetime is just a moment to you, at best, each of us is but a breath. We are merely moving shadows, and all our busy rushing ends in nothing. We heap up wealth, not knowing who will spend it. And here's the point. And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. Let's continue in worship. We're going to worship uh, singing some words that are out of the book of Revelation. Picture that picture in the throne room of heaven. Seal and open the scroll. 
Jesus, we thank you for this time that we have together to, to worship you. And just as, as we sang that, that you are worthy, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to understand exactly what that means for us today. What that means in our lives and, and that we, we as people need someone who is worthy because we are not. That our righteousness is nothing and that your righteousness is everything. We look around at the world that we live in and we see brokenness and pain. But then we look in ourselves and we find the same thing, brokenness in pain and only then do we realize when we look at you that you are the only thing that can make us new 
we ask, Lord, that as we worship today, that we would we would worship out of that gratitude and and that truth that you are worthy. We pray for um, our church and our nation today, Lord. We pray for your peace and your unity. We pray for your power and wisdom. We thank you so much for all of the many blessings that you have given us. And we ask that you would help us to remember where all of those blessings come from. We pray for Pastor Tim as he brings your word this morning. We pray that your words would would just flow strongly out of him, Lord. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together and just help us to love you and love each other well as a church. We love you, Father God, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to continue in worship, but um, if you want to worship through giving, there are, there are a couple options that you can do that. There are um, some plates at the back that you can you can put money in on your way out. Otherwise, you can also give online at tlefc.org, and there's also a text-to-give option there as well. Pastor Tim is going to come in a minute to uh, preach to us, uh, looking at the life of Noah. And one of the themes of that passage of Scripture is the promises of God, that he makes promises and he keeps them. So we're going to sing now a song, if you would stand up. Uh, that It's an old hymn that speaks of the promises of God.
Amen. Please be seated. Will you pray with me again? Father, we we do thank you for your promises, for for the assurity we have that your word will not fail, that your promises are sure and can be trusted. God, so help us to, to trust what you have to say to us, to trust your word, make up a confidence to live lives that glorify you, sure that you have good plans for all those who trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So it is in the book, like The Grapes of Wrath, John Steinbeck, he tells the story of the Joad family. And they're, they're these sharecroppers who are living during the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression. And so the, the Dust Bowl comes and it wipes out all their crops and they have an unsympathetic landlord and so they're forced off of their land. And these things are looking pretty good bleak and they don't know where to go, but they had seen this advertisement for California, promising high paying jobs and good living conditions, and so the family like converts their sedan into a truck, loads up all their possessions into the truck and heads out for California. But then they get to California and they learn like things are not quite as they were promised. There's an overabundance of workers, and I mean wages are painfully low, workers are exploited. The family like lives on in meager conditions, but one trial after another befalls them. And, like one of the lessons we can take from that is like a fresh start doesn't guarantee better results if the underlying problems are the same. Like both in Oklahoma and in California, the Joe family runs into landowners who are looking to exploit workers and not treat them well. So the underlying problem stays the same until the fresh start doesn't yield any better results. And we see kind of a similar thing in, in the story today, right, of Noah and the flood. Kind of this, the main idea of this story is that God is going to save humanity from judgment through a new Adam. But the results are going to be sadly the same. And Noah's going to be this picture of a new Adam after the first Adam failed. But we'll see because like, the first Adam failed because of sin. Right? And that underlying problem is not dealt with in Noah. And so the problems repeat themselves. And it's like that should lead us to yearn for a, a true and a better and a final Adam who can take care of the problem of sin once and for all. So, the story of Noah found in Genesis kind of chapter 6 through 9. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there. There's one in your seat in front of you if you want to grab that. We're not going to read the whole thing, and so I'm not going to have all the verses on the screen because it's just a long passage, and so I'd invite you to have that open in front of you as we kind of jump around the story a little bit. And so, like this story of Noah... And the flood is probably one of the best known stories in the whole Bible. 
Like, it's also probably one of the most misunderstood, misrepresented stories in the whole Bible. Right? Like, this is the story, like the deadliest story in the Bible. Like, 99.9999999% of all life on earth dies. Like, that's the one story, like, every kid's story about the Bible is sure to have. Like, that's the one story that every kid's Sunday school curriculum is sure to cover. Like, how can that be? And it's because the story is misunderstood. So I just Googled Noah's Ark lesson for kids and clicked on the top few links and just, like, looked for their main point in that story. And these are, like, the top ones. I didn't, like, dig for the worst example. These are just the top ones. So here are the main points of the first four that I found. Number one. In this Sunday school lesson, children learn about Noah and the ark he built according to God's instructions. Those children also learn that it's very important to obey God in all things. Number two, Noah was an obedient man. God saved Noah. Number three, no matter what other people think, we need to be obedient to God. Number four, Noah followed God's instructions and was saved. We should follow God's instructions today. You want to know why so many kids are growing up and leaving the church? Because we teach them stuff like this. We teach them that being obedient to God is what is going to save you. And they grow up and they fail. They find they can't be obedient like Noah. And so they throw in the towel, they quit, and they walk away. The point of this story is not that Noah was obedient, so God saved Noah. The point of this story is like Noah was the most obedient person God could find. He was the best of the best, and it wasn't good enough. But to see that, you have to keep reading the story beyond where we normally stop. The most telling to this story, the family gets off the boat, God makes a promise with Noah to Noah with a rainbow, and they all live happily ever after. But they don't live happily ever after. You have to keep reading. You can't just stop at the good part and pretend the bad stuff that comes next doesn't count. That's what we do with this story so often. But I'm I'm getting getting ahead of myself, so let's back up a little bit. We'll come back to the end of the story in a little bit. My point right now is just like, this is a misunderstood story. But the fact that it's misunderstood doesn't mean that we should ignore it or that it's not important. Like, rightly understanding what's going on in this story is actually incredibly important if we're going to understand the full scope of what's happening in the Bible. If we're going to see the Bible as this one grand story with the personal work of Jesus Christ as like the scarlet thread, as we've been calling it, that runs through the whole thing, then we need to understand what's going on with Noah and the flood. And you can tell how important this story is in the Bible book author's mind because he slows down. The author of Genesis covers basically 1,600 years in the 32 verses of Genesis chapter 5. And he slams on the brakes and takes four whole chapters to tell us this one story of Noah and the flood. Again, it's not because nothing interesting happened in Genesis chapter 5, like you don't want to know about. Like, Genesis 5 
23 and 24 says, Altogether Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch, Enoch walked faithfully with God. Then he was no more because God took him away. Like, I want to know more of that story. Like, God just took him away? But didn't, the author gives us nothing. He doesn't tell us any more than that. Because it'd be interesting, but it doesn't help us understand the big picture of what's going on in the Bible. But the story of Noah and the flood in their hand, as the author slows way down, four whole chapters, because it's essential to understanding what's going on in the Bible. And like I said, because this story is so long, like we're not going to read the whole thing. To read it from beginning to end, it's like 2,000 words to read the story of Noah and the Flood. Like my sermons on average are about 4,000 words, so like half the sermon would be reading the passage. And some of you like really wish I would do that and not talk so much, but you're stuck with me. And so we're gonna, I'm going to kind of summarize parts. We're going to read key verses here and there, but we're not going to read the whole thing. So with that in mind, we're going to start by looking at Genesis chapter 6, verses 11 through 13. The author writes, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So here we are, like three chapters. Three chapters removed from the very first sin. And things which have gone downhill in a hurry. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel and things just keep going downhill from there. Like from bad to worse until here we read the earth was just full of violence. To the point that God says, enough is enough. I'm going to put an end to all people. For the earth is filled with violence because of them. And so God told Adam and Eve to like, multiply and fill the earth. Right? To cover the earth with his glory as his image bears. But instead of filling the earth with his glory, they had filled the earth with violence. And so God decides he's going to start over going to make a fresh start. God's saying, like, out with the old, in with the new. The first step in that process is out with the old. God declares, I'm going to put an end to all people. And in that statement, it's one of the key themes of really the whole Bible, which is that sin deserves judgment. And not a slap on the wrist kind of judgment. Not a go to your room and think about what you've done kind of judgment. An eternal, you should be destroyed kind of judgment. And it's easy to read that and think, like, wow, things must have been really, really bad back in the time of Noah if that was the punishment they deserved. But if you were here last week, right, we talked about Adam and Eve and their sin and how sin is so insidious and so like, we shouldn't be surprised by this kind of judgment. Because all sin is an attempt to remove God from his throne as king of the universe and replace him with something else. Right? All sin is holy insurrection. And so all sin, not just really bad sin, but all sin deserves this kind 
a judgment. Your sin, my sin, like all of it deserves death. But the amazing thing about this story is that, that God could have wiped out everyone, including Noah, and just started completely over. But because of his grace, because of his love for his people, he doesn't do that. He instead chooses to save one family and make a fresh start with them. And so in chapter 6, verse 8, we read, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God's going to make a, a fresh start with Noah. And in fact, like drive home how this is like really a fresh start. The author depicts Noah as a kind of a new Adam. And so if we go back to the end of Genesis chapter 5, there's a guy named Lamech, and he's Noah's father. And in verse 29 of chapter 5, he says, he's naming Noah after he's born, he says, he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground the Lord hath cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And so Noah, his name in Hebrew sounds like the word for rest. The idea here seems to be like, Lamech hopes that Noah's going to be the one who's going to start to undo the effects of the fall and the curse. That that the, the curse that God had placed on Adam, that like the ground was going to only give forth its produce through hard work and toil, that Noah was going to be the one to start to undo those effects. He names Noah in the hope that Noah's going to be the one who's going to crush the serpent's head and undo the effects of the fall and sin and finally bring humanity rest from its toil. And for a while, like, it looks like it might work out. Noah is a truly incredible person. In Genesis 6, 9 we read, or this is the account of Noah and his family, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. So this, the first tells us three things about Noah. Like one, he was righteous. And usually that word righteous, the way it's used throughout the Old Testament, had to do with like your relationship with other people. Right? He treated others righteously. The second thing it tells us is he was blameless. This usually has to do with your relationship with God. Like, that Noah was blameless before God in his interactions with God. And that doesn't mean sinless. Right? David calls himself blameless in Second Samuel like after he had committed adultery and had a guy murdered. So it's not, like, blameless does not mean sinless, but he means like a good relationship with God. And even more, the first cousin, that Noah walked with God faithfully. The only other time we hear that expression, like walked with God, was of Enoch, who we just read about, right? The guy who didn't have to die because he was so righteous. It's like we get this crescendoing picture of Noah's holiness. He's righteous before men. He is blameless before God. In fact, he's so blameless that he walks with God. And so God tells Noah, I'm going, to destroy, I'm going to destroy the earth with a flood. And so, like, you go build this incredibly massive ark. Like, you're going to do it purely on faith, right? Because there's no sign of what's to come of the one I'm telling you. So, 
Noah, trusting God, walking with God, goes and he builds the ark. In fact, twice we're told, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. He's perfectly obedient to what God had called him to up to this point. So God wants to give the earth a fresh start. So he finds like the most righteous person he can and chooses him as the person that he's going to start over with. Like, there's other, other signs that the author sees Noah as a kind of new Adam, a second Adam. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, we read, this is like while they're on the ark, but God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent the wind over the earth and the waters receded. That word wind there is the same word as the word for spirit in chapter 1, verse 2, at the creation of the world when we read, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So this, this picture of a wind or the Spirit coming over the earth in the time of Noah, there's a picture of, like, this is a new creation. God is making a new creation following the flood, and Noah, it's a new Adam that's going to represent humans in that new creation. And then in chapter 9 of Genesis, twice we hear the command given to, Ad, given to Noah, like, be fruitful and multiply. And that's the same command that God gave to Adam and Eve. Just listen to First Genesis chapter 1, 20, 28, and then Genesis 9, 1. Just note the comparisons. So Genesis 1, 28 says, God blessed them, this is Adam and Eve, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the bird and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then in Genesis 9, 1, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and on every creature that moves along the ground. And on all the fish in the sea, they are given into your hands. And so Noah is a new Adam. Noah and his family are given the same command that Adam and Eve were given. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But they get a fresh start. Like the, the effects of sin have been totally removed from the earth. So they get off the boat, and then God makes a promise to Noah that we probably all have heard before in Genesis 9, 11 through 16. I will establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth? And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the water become a flood to destroy all life. 
whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. Again, it's really easy right, to want to just stop the story right there. You just wrap up, wrap up the sermon. Like, Remember, like, every time you see a rainbow, it's a reminder of God's promises. And, like, and God can take your darkest clouds and turn them into something beautiful. Like, happy ending. Bye. Because that, that appeals to our hearts. Like, it sounds nice. Like, it looks good on a coffee mug or whatever. But there's just one problem. Like, as I said earlier, that's not how the story ends. There's this scene in the TV show Scrubs, or not Scrubs, Friends, where, like, one of the characters, Phoebe, walks in and people are watching Old Yeller. And, like, they're bollocks at the end of the movie where Old Yeller's about to die. And Phoebe's like, what are you guys watching? And they're like, Old Yeller. And she's like, why are you crying? It's a happy movie. And they're like, what? She's like, yeah, like, Old Yeller, like, you saved the family from the well, and then my mom comes in and turns out the movie and says, the end. And, like, she skips the part where, like, Old Yeller gets rabies and dies. And, like, that's what we do with this story. Like, like oh, they got the boat, there's a rainbow, the end. But it's not the end. In fact, they got the boat, and we see the same results that Adam and Eve got in the garden. Chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. Noah, a man of the soil, planted, proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he drank some of his wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and, and told his two brothers outside. It's like the very first thing we read after the happy part is like Noah and his family fall back into sin. Noah gets drunk and is laying naked in his tent. And then the passage says like his son Ham saw him. And, like, and just like the way this word saw worked in Hebrew, like it wasn't like an accidental, oops, I saw you, like I'm going to run away quick. Like it was like a, it was more than a quick glance. So like they even like like they even fall back into sin by like consuming fruit from a garden or in the case a vineyard. It's like the same results as Adam and Eve. I said earlier like this like the point of this story is not look at how righteous Noah is and try to be like him. The point of this story is God gave humanity a fresh start with the most righteous man he could find. And the results were the same. The world quickly falls back into sin. The next kind of main story in Genesis is the story of the Tower of Babel, where people want to make themselves great by building this great tower. They're trying to make themselves like God, which is the same sin that Satan tempted Adam and Eve with in the garden. So, despite what Lamech hoped when he named his son. Despite what looked like a promising start for Noah, it quickly becomes clear that Noah's not going to be the one to crush the serpent's head. Noah's not going to be the one that's going to undo the effects of sin in the world. 
And if it's not going to be Noah, then two things seem obvious. Number one, we need another Adam. And number two, that that Adam can't be merely man, because no man will ever escape the effect of sin in himself. And so just like in Genesis 3 with the fall of Adam and Eve, there's curses following the fall. This story has curses following the fall as well. In Genesis 9, verses 24 through 27, we read, When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will be Will he be to his brothers? He also said, Pray be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be to the slave of Shem. And may God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. It's tempting, right? To just kind of see those names, they read that curse, and to be like, I don't know what all those names mean, I don't know what's going on, like, what kind of blow through that as I read my Bible. But if we slow down and think about what those names mean, or at least it sets the stage for the rest of the Bible story. And so in verse 25, Noah says, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. So for Ham's sins against Noah of looking at him while he was naked in the tent, like, Noah curses his son Canaan. And Canaan, of course, is going to be the father of the Canaanites, who are going to be a constant thorn in the side of the Israelites as they try to enter the promised land. But the problems with Ham's children don't stop with just Canaan. In Genesis 10, we learn that some of Ham's other kids include Cush and Egypt. And a line of Cusha family would eventually grow into the Assyrians. And so Genesis 10.13 tells us, Egypt was the father of the Ludites, Anamites, Lebites, Naphthus, something tights, right, Pathrusites, Kalashites, from whom the Philistines came. Right? And so, again, maybe that just sounds like a bunch of names, but like, Understand this. Like from Ham come the following people. Right? One, the Egyptians who enslaved the Israelites in Egypt before the Exodus. Two, the Canaanites who, like we said, like the Israelites will fight constantly as they're trying to enter the promised land under Joshua. Three, the Philistines like who are constantly a pain in the neck of the Israelites during the time of Judges and like, the time of David. Right? Like, Goliath is the Philistine. And then the Assyrians, who would eventually come in, they would wipe out the whole northern kingdom of the nation of Israel. Like, so, like, from the line of Ham come all of Israel's great enemies. That can be a little perplexing, right? Because Noah says, Noah prophesies that like, Canaan will be a slave to Shem. Right? But throughout the Old Testament... God's people, like who come from the line of Shem, Shem becomes, actually turns into the Israelites. Right? Like God's people spend a lot more time enslaved to 
Cain and Ham's other sons than the other way around. So it seems like things are not going the way Noah had prophesied. But eventually, from the line of Shem, Jesus would be born. And Jesus would be the last Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45, Paul writes, So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. It's like, while the first Adam failed, and Noah, as the new Adam, failed, Jesus, as the last Adam, would not fail. Because he was not merely human. Paul goes on to say in verse 47 of the same chapter, The first man was the dust of the earth. The second man, Jesus, is of heaven. It took God himself leaving the glories of heaven and becoming a man to finally do what Adam and Noah couldn't do. It required God coming to earth as a man to finally crush the head of the serpent and to undo all the effects of sin brought about by the first Adam and repeated by Noah. And that's, like, that's what God did for us in Jesus. Like Even from way back in the very beginning, God had an effect, a plan to undo the effects of sin. And he knew that no mere man would be able to do it. He knew that he would have to send his son. That his son would have to die on the cross if the curse was ever going to be reversed. And he did that for us in Jesus because of his love for us. And because he did that, all of God's enemies, like all the sons of Ham, Ham, would one day be defeated by a son of Shem. But you might ask, well, where does that leave us, like you and me? Probably none or very few of us here are a descendant of Shem. Few of us are Israelites. It's like, what does that, where does this leave us? But after cursing Canaan and blessing Shem, God goes on to make another statement about his other son, Japheth. And he says, May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. Right? And so it sounds like Japheth and his sons are going to eventually replace the sons of Shem. If we're going to understand this, we have to wrap our heads around who the sons of Japheth are. If you follow kind of the genealogies, like the sons of Japheth eventually move into Greece and Italy, and like all that area, pretty much along the northern Mediterranean coast. So in short, like, the sons of Japheth inhabit all the lands that like, Paul would eventually go to on his missionary journeys. And on those journeys, Paul would go first to the Jewish people, to the sons of Shem, but they almost always rejected his message. That he would turn to the Gentiles, to the sons of Japheth. Like in Romans 11, Paul talks about like an olive tree with its natural branches, the Jewish people, like being broken off in wild olive branches, that's the Gentiles, replacing them in the tree. 
And that's what's going on here. That's what Noah prophesying here. Noah envisioned the sons of Japheth eventually living in the tents of Shem, replacing them with the masters over Canaan. Like on the gospel going to and being received by the Gentiles, it's the fulfillment of that prophecy. Like that's you and me, that's how we got here. As one writer said, we, all us Gentiles, we are sons of Japheth dwelling in the tents of Shem. That's what this story is about. It's about God from like very, very early in human history making clear a plan to save for himself a people from all nations, from all tribes, from all tongues, through a new and final Adam who comes from the line of Shem. And Jesus' sinless life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, they proved him to be that final Adam. And by, by believing in that Jesus, like we're invited into his family. We're invited into his tent. And in that family, in that tent, like the effects of sin are undone. We're forgiven of our sins. We can live with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So God makes the promise to Noah that he would never again destroy the earth by a flood. But Peter tells us there is coming another day of judgment. In fact, he compares it to Noah and the flood. In 2 Peter chapter 3, we read this. By these waters, which is the waters of the flood, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Then he says this. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And all those who have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, like they'll, they'll pass through that judgment, like Noah and his family passed through the storm. And they will enter the new heavens and the new earth. Well, all those who have not trusted in Jesus will, will face judgment and destruction. And so, like, yes. Like, you should try to be obedient like Noah. You should want to obey God. That should be a goal of our lives. But it's not the point of the story of Noah and the flood. The point is that your obedience, no matter how hard you try, no matter how close to perfect you are, is not enough. You need someone with perfect obedience to obey for you, to save you from God's just judgment for sin. So the story of Noah it should, it should point us to Jesus. And it should cause us to be amazed at the righteousness of Jesus, that he did what no human could do. He lived a perfect and sinless life. The story of Noah should cause us to be amazed that Jesus left the glories of heaven and came into a, a sin-sick world to save us, despite that we had done nothing to deserve it. That he came to be the last Adam. Let's pray. Father, we... 
confess that it's easy to get wrapped up on our own righteousness to look at people more sinful than us and to think, "Ah, I'm not so bad. But God, we confess that we are sinners. We are sinful. We fall short of what you call us to in terms of obedience. We need a Savior. And we praise you and we thank you for sending Jesus to be that Savior for us, to do what Adam and to do what Noah couldn't do, to live a life perfectly obedient to you. And we praise you that Jesus died on the cross for us, that by believing in him we can be forgiven. And we thank you for the faith of Noah in his listening to you and building an ark, even when it seemed foolish. And that you would give us the same kind of faith to trust you and be obedient to you in response to what Jesus has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Tim, for that great word. Let's stand and let's uh, conclude our service by singing a modern hymn of response by faith.
which will always fail us, but going by faith in the one who obeyed where we could not. You're dismissed. Thank you.